your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 and extend to me some, some mercy and some grace. I don't know the last time I preached through 17 verses consecutively. Uh, I like to take smaller chunks and chop it all. I've got no one else to blame. I, I planned this all out. I just, uh, I hate myself now. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 and we'll be reading verse 1 to verse 17. So far in the, in the book of Colossians, Jesus has been exalted by Paul. Jesus has been glorified by Paul. Jesus has been expounded by Paul as the once for all finished sacrifice and atonement. He has been the one that, of whom Paul has been saying that we need nothing else. We don't need anything else for our salvation. That, that was, that, that was uh, early on that Jesus is the one true God. And since he took on flesh and he died, we therefore have nothing else that is required for our salvation. That was Colossians 1 and bits of chapter 2. Last week we also saw in chapter 2, verse 16 through to 23, that we don't even need something outside of Jesus for our sanctification. That sanctification is not going from faith in Jesus to something next and better. It's simply realizing that we have Jesus as our head. We have Jesus as the finished work for us. And sanctification is merely going deeper and deeper into that understanding. Sanctification, of course, meaning the way that we grow in our holiness. And so we were able to throw off all sorts of uh, uh, reasons that people have to add Old Testament laws onto New Testament Christians or add silly legalistic rules on top of New Testament Christians, which are seemingly impressive in how holy they sound. They are seemingly impressive in how, how holy they make people look. But as verse 23 told us, they have no real value in stopping any sin. We come to chapter 3 now. We're having uh, argued all of those things so, so cohesively. Paul is now sort of addressing the question, or at least the mental mindset that he thinks might spring up if he doesn't write chapters 3 to 4. And that is that Colossian Christians are going to hear all of this awesome language about Jesus being everything, the, the work being accomplished, everything being done for us in the blood of Jesus by which he justified us, paid for our sin, established an eternal righteousness, did all of that. He's done it all, which means that as a Christian, I don't need to do anything with my body. I don't need to have anything that marks me out or changes me or separates me or makes me holy from anyone else in the world. All I need to do is, is have faith and believe and, and everything else that I do is utterly irrelevant. Amen, somebody? No, don't amen that at all. You're listening or what? No, of course, yeah, that, that's, what he's, that, that's the problem, he thinks, that you're, just, you're too much of a call and response. You've got you to think about these things now. Uh, uh, he's, he's, he's guessing that as he has explained all this, there's going to be somebody who's thinking that way, who is thinking that, the, 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 you're right, these Colossian heretics, they were coming in and tell me what I could eat, where I could go, what I could drink, what uh, uh, holidays I could partake in, and they're not allowed. Therefore, I'm allowed to go and celebrate in the sex parade in Colossae, and I'm allowed to go and eat and drink in the idolatrous feast in the pagan temple. Right, Paul? And Paul says, absolutely not. Just because we have all that we need in Christ, that does not mean that you have experienced all that is on offer in Christ. 
So that when we say that you are not yet complete in yourself, we're not saying that you need to go and touch base with some other divinity to get to the next stage of fullness. We're saying that you have all of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. You have been filled in Him, but now He needs to work that out in your life. He is not done with you yet. He needs and desires and will make you look like Him in heart and behavior. So look now to chapter 3, verse 1, as we start going through this glorious chapter. The word of the one true triune living God says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, passionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God bless his own inerrant, inspired, authoritative word in our midst this evening. Amen. Well, here we start off with, uh, we need to be reminded of what might be new for some of us, a, a, a Christian anthropology or, a, a, and, and touch on our ontology, okay? We need to understand our ontology, uh, which makes up our anthropology, to then understand how to start thinking about how a Christian thinks. Here's what we mean. The, 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 the person, the, the human being made in the image of God is, uh, 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 is a body and a soul, but, but, but inwardly we have a mind. Some of us, right? Anyone nodding? Yes, we have a mind. Uh, and we have hearts, which have affections. And then we have our will. And flowing from our will, we have our behaviors. Okay, this is sort of the, the four-part understanding we need to have of our own nature in order to understand how to make the most out of our sanctification. So, so, so you have behaviors that you do, and your behavior is nothing more than the, the, your will being enacted. 
Okay, your behavior, external actions are merely your will in action. And your will is nothing more than the, 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 the affection within you that is, you are most inclined to. Your will will be bent to do whatever the affection within you is most strongly inclined to do. And your affections incline and desire according to how you think. For that reason, we see that Paul and the, and the New Testament writers speak to the Christian's understanding of the most fundamental realities in the world. They, they, they speak to our understanding and then see that from the renewed mind, a new heart with different affections will come. From those renewed affections flowing out of a heart that is informed by a mind, out of those affections will come a will that is in line with God's will. And once your will is in line, therefore your behavior will follow because your behavior is just your, your will being externalized, okay? When you're a child, uh, you might have desired to taste the, the sweet drink that is, that is white in color, that is up on top of the fridge, that mom and dad would never let you have. And any time you tried to climb things and take that most beautiful juice or cordial, whatever you thought it was, you'd get a, you'd get a smack on the hand, you'd get some discipline, and, and you desired that thing with everything that is within you until you grow up just a little bit and you start to be able to read and then you understand that what it says on that as well there's a skull and crossbones it says poison it says bleach it says keep out of reach of children now as soon as your mind is able to understand what that is isn't it true that immediately some of us for the for most of us for for, for hopefully all of us the affections that so desired that thing will immediately run away your mind informs your affections absolutely so, and your affections lead into your actions, right? You don't need to smack me on the hand anymore to tell me to stop climbing that. I don't want to die. I'm perfectly fine to not do that. And legalism comes in too far downstream. Legalistic, externalistic religion comes in too far downstream and simply addresses your actions. You're sleeping with them. You're drinking too much. You're eating too much. You're being too violent. You need to stop it. You need to stop it. You need to stop it. Otherwise, we'll punish you. Otherwise, you won't get the goods. There's all of these external rules, laws, and motivations that have to be put on somebody because they are acting a certain way. Uh, but, but it would be inappropriate to go back to, to what we might call a spiritualistic, experientialistic Christianity and say, well, we need to change your affections so that your behavior changes, right? That's what Pastor Tom said. Let's do that. Let's get you into, a, into an experience, into a spiritual kind of emotionalistic, affectionistic experience of God because once you've experienced God and the bass hits and the drums are going and your favorite chorus just got sung for the 40th time, uh, when that hits, now your heart's changed. Now you, you can't live the same anymore, they'll tell you, until you walk out the doors and you're sinning just like before. You can't change the affections without first addressing the mind. That's why we have to sing theological things. That's why we have to teach doctrinal, biblical, theological truth because as your mind is renewed in knowledge, then your affections change and I don't have to do a whole lot of micromanaging of your behavior. That's how it works. We, we see this coming up in verse 10. So 
Fast forward to verse 10. We'll read it there. And then we will go back and uh, 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 with this uh, overview, go back into verse 1 through 4. In verse 10, he speaks about the fact that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It starts with the knowledge, becomes a a renewing factor in the person so that the new self is lived out. And he's talking there about behaviors. So behavior is secondary to affections. Affections are secondary to your mind, and your mind, therefore, needs to be taught. I say all of that because in the structure of tonight, we see that in verse 1 to 4, he tells the Christians where to put their mind, In verse 5 until 15, he tells them what effect this should have on their heart and behavior. And then from verse 15 onwards to 17, we see that he characterizes the whole Christian life as thankfulness. So let's go back to what he says about the mind. Look at verse 1. He says, if you have been raised with Christ. And this is, this is sort of closing the loop because in verse 20 of last chapter, he said, if you've died with Christ to those elemental spirits, act like it. But he doesn't leave us in the grave conceptually. He brings us back up. He says, uh, if you've died with Christ, live like it. If you've been raised with Christ, then live like it. So if you, with Christ, have been raised, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. He's telling them, get your mind into reality. There are certain things that are true of you, Certain things that have happened to you that demand your attention and you must live in light of them. Some of you know and some of you don't. About four months, I'm guessing, I think, I snapped both bones in my leg and I was in the hospital and they plastered it all up and pumped me full of ketamine and morphine and all sorts of stuff that makes me pretty angry, to be honest. It wasn't a fun experience. I'm, I'm naturally, in case you haven't known, pretty short-tempered and pretty easily frustrated, uh, and I'm thankful for God's sanctifying work. But I'm laying there in bed, and I'm away from my wife. That always makes me angry as well. I'm away from my wife. I'm on drugs, and I'm super thirsty. I need to go to the toilet. I'm super hungry, and no one is letting me out of bed. So what I did was I had climbed up over. I sort of leveraged the, 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 the pole thing. I was a nurse. I should know what that's called. But anyway, the poley thing. I leveraged them over that, over the handlebars, and I was sort of hopping on one leg, about to make my way to the bathroom where I could drink some water from the tap and, uh, and, uh, and relieve myself and all of these. And the lady rushed in, the poor young nurse, rushes into my room and says, Mr. Ford, you have a broken leg. Now, that much I remembered wasn't new to me, but, but she was reminding me of things that were true of me. She says, you've got a broken leg. If you hop, you will fall. You are on drugs. You are not allowed to eat or drink anything because you have a surgery in just a few hours. You need to get back in bed. You have an IV drip that is about to pull out of your arm that's giving you all the water. Please don't drink anything. I can get you uh, an apparatus in order to urinate. Now, at that moment, what was she telling me? Other than, please don't get me fired, get back in bed. What she was telling me was, there are things that are imminently, immediately true of you 
and if you do not live in light of them, you will be confused, you'll be conflicted, and you will be in pain. And that is true of the Christian life. There are things true of you, which if you do not realize, because they're invisible truths, if you do not realize them, you will be out of joint. Your whole life will be conflicted and confused and painful. And so Paul is telling us, get your mind right. Get it into the right gear. Get it into the right setting. Certain things have happened to you that you need to get in line with. And those things he just listed from verse 1 to 4, he's just listed the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God, the rule of Christ whereby our lives are hidden with him and the return of Christ in glory when he makes us like him. He just said all of that in, in, in four short verses. So he's saying to us, things are true of you. They have happened to Christ, but you're one with Christ, therefore they happen to you and you need to align your life with those. Some of us need to hear that the ultimate true things about us, the things that are most ultimately true of us is not your preferences, is not your relationship status, it is not your, your, your income status, it is not your, your, your past sins, it is not your trauma, it is not your childhood, it is not your marriage, it is not your sins, it is not your regrets, it is not your righteousness, it is not your strengths, it is not what is good or bad or horrible about you. The ultimately true thing about you is that you have a life hid with Christ, and Christ died to sin and for sin, rose from the dead victoriously, leaving death with a massive brain hemorrhage on his way out. He took the throne of David over the kingdom of God. He's sitting there and ruling there. Your life is secure in him and with him, and he'll come back one day to raise you from the dead if you've died, give you back an eternal body, and join yourself to him forever. That is what is ultimately true of you. That is what is ultimately true of you. And to disagree with that is the first step towards an unsanctified life. Do you see what he's doing? He's getting our mind right so that our affections follow and our wills will be changed. <clears throat> he says here in verse 1 and 2, he says, seek the things that are above. And in verse 2, he says, set your mind on things that are above. Parallel commands. And and we, we could sort of hear the word above here and think, well, that's what the Colossian heretics were talking about, the spirit realm. Get your mind into the angel visions and into the, the heavenly places. Get, get yourself up off this earth into the heavenly spots. And, and they would even say the next phrase as well, not on the things that are on earth. Neglect your body and your marriage and the food. It's, it's all about the spiritual experiences. Is that what Paul is calling above here, the things that we should seek? Absolutely not. It's clear in the context of the book of Colossians that what Paul thinks of as above, as supreme, as above everything else is Jesus Christ. That's what he's been saying for two chapters straight. Back in chapter 1, he said that Christ is God, verse 15 and 19. Christ is the creator of all things, verse 16. He's the sustainer of all things, verse 17. He's the savior of the fallen world, verse 18. He's the deliverer of God's people, verse 14. He's the head over the church, verse 18. He's king over God's kingdom, verse 14. And then in chapter 3 here, he said that he's the, he's the Lord on the right, at the right hand of God. He's ruling over 
over the new covenant kingdom, verse 1. He's the life source of every Christian, verse 2. And he is returning in glory to judge, verse 4. So what does Paul mean when he says, set your mind on things above? He means, set your mind on God and his nature, his purposes, his finished work in Christ, his salvation, his kingdom, and his law, his values, and his purposes, and his great commission to us. That is the effect that Paul is straining for. He wants, and it's amazing, when, when you've walked in this just a little bit, it's, it, you may at first think, I want something more practical. Don't talk to me about my mind. I want to change how I live. I want to give up this addiction. I want to be able to break off this sinful relationship. I want to be able to honor God with my finances. I want to just tell me what to do. And Paul's saying, I'm doing that. I'm telling you who you are, which is a lot more important than what you do. It's more true. You get your mindset right on Jesus, who is above, and everything that relates to him, his work, his purposes, his word to us. You get your mind on Christ. The actions after the heart will follow. And he said, when he says, and don't set your mind on things on earth, he doesn't, like we said before, simply mean physical things. Nor does he even just mean sinful things. There's plenty of things in the world which aren't sinful, which are still a distraction from Jesus Christ. What he means here is anything that is opposed to the heavenly. Anything that is against the lordship of Christ, do not set your mind on those things. Anything that opposes the kingdom of God, do not seek to gain an income in those things. Anything that dishonors the person of God or people made in his image, do not manipulate a way to be gaining from that. The, the, anything that dilutes the truth of God, anything that perverts the church of God, anything that slows the great commission of God, put them away, don't set your mind on them as desirable. Anything that is in disharmony or out of joint with the purposes of God, reject them. Anything that disobeys the law of God, of course, is something that is of the earth and against the heavenly aboveness in Christ, which we are to be seeking. So he started here with the mind. Verse 1 to 4, get your mind where your life is. Get your mind where it needs to be, which is on Jesus, above all, the most imminent, true fact of all things is that Christ is Lord and you are in him. And then he starts going through what that should look, when that's believed, when Jesus is being sought, when that is shaping and renewing your mind, your life will look a certain way. And it looks like verse 5 through 15, but we'll start with verse 5 itself. Look at, look at what he says here. Just as the old covenant, God saved them and then gave them a holiness code. Here's how to look like me. Here's how to set yourself apart. Here's how to be my people. So God does the same. He saves us and he gives to us these new covenant holy codes. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Let's start just with the therefore. That I know we've got 17 verses to get through, but, but it's important that we start here. As we consider what we are being told to do, which in biblical language is called uh, an imperative, in theological language, being told to do something in Scripture is an imperative. God's telling you to do something. Put things to death. 
Stop lying. Stop stealing. Stop being sexually immoral. They're imperatives. What we find in the New Testament is that imperatives are always on the back of indicatives. Indicatives are not usually a word we would use a whole bunch, especially not in this sort of uh, 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 way, but indicatives are things that are true about you or true external to you. You're not being asked to do them. You're being told about them. Imperatives do not come to us alone in the New Testament. Rather, we have the, the writers like Paul say, this is true, therefore go and do this. So you've heard him say, you're dead to sin, therefore put sin to death. He says, you are raised with Christ, therefore get your mind on Christ. Your life is above, therefore let the above affect your life. He's, he's never simply saying climb the ladder. He's saying it's already a fact for us, now just live in it. This is so important. It keeps us from legalism. It keeps us from trying to earn our way into the good grace of God when we realize he's already told us, I have finished the atoning work. I have given you the strength of the Spirit. You can do this, therefore I'll command you to do this. The commands given to us in the New Testament are not impossibly, ridiculously, brutally hard. The commandments of God, 1 John tells us, are light. They are, they are not burdensome. They are a joy for us. And so he says here, he says, put to death, therefore, since you're alive in Christ, put to death what is earthy or against the heavenly places in you. Sexual immorality, meaning any act or affection. I, I think this first section is mostly about internal affections. The next section is about how we sin against each other. But in this first verse, Sexual immorality is probably referring to desires or being led by sexual desires and lusts. Impurity here means probably also a sexual uh, connotation. Delighting in sexual acts or thinking about relationships that before God are sexually sinful. Passion being led about by uncurbed desires, simply, simply being like an animal. It wants something, it gets something. We ought not to live that way. Our passions from within, the affections, should be curbed and controlled by our mind and what we know to be true. Evil desire, meaning the hunger for all kinds of sin and iniquity. And covetousness, which is wanting what God has not given you, or wanting something that has been forbidden for anybody to have. And that really kind of summarizes everything we've looked at. If, if God says, you can't act this way sexually, you can't have these things, you can't have that person, they're married, they're not your wife, they're not your husband, you can't have that. If God forbids it from us or from humans in general, and then we want it, we are in every instance committing the sin of covetousness. Wishing we had something God has outlawed. Wishing we had something God didn't give us. And therefore, we're ultimately just wishing we had a better God. One who didn't put these laws in place. Which is why he says that that is idolatry. When we want things God hasn't given us, but he gave to others. Or if we want things that he said no one can have, we're saying, I prefer a view of God that doesn't make these rules. I prefer a kind of God whose nature is not against my nature and that itself is idolatry. He calls it idolatry here. He says, on account of the, these, the wrath of God is coming. 
I think that it's intentional for Paul that he distinguishes between the wrath of God on the Christian and the wrath of God that is coming for sinful behaviors and actions. He doesn't say God's wrath will burn you up, Christian, because he's already presupposed that God's wrath burned Christ up in your place and there is no punishment left for you. What he says is, you're like a guy who had a big night on the town and is now waking up hungover inside an abandoned building and it is set for demolition. There is destruction coming upon this dead structure and you are in it and you shouldn't be. The purpose of the demolition was not to murder you, so it is very good and right for the person that comes across you or the demolition worker to find you and tell you, get out of here, you're where you are not to be. You are where you ought not to be. Get away, you have a different nature. You're not, you're not rusting metal and broken building, you're human. Get out of the building. And so Paul is telling that to the Colossians and to us. He's saying God's wrath is coming for sexual morality, passion, sinful desires, all of these things. What are you doing there? Why are the children of God found there in the, in, in the sexual immorality, in the sinfulness? Why are we living there? He says, get out. You don't belong there. It's coming down. If you want to live there for good, then throw away any profession of faith that you have. You are not alive with Christ. The wrath of God is coming, but he gives them better news. He says in verse 7, you used to walk that way. I know. You, you walked that way. You lived that way. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. He's acknowledging and presupposing his whole command tonight on the basis that they have undergone regeneration. The Christian religion is not one that through good laws and good advice imposes God's laws onto unnatural, unrighteous people. Some of you are not saved, and every time you hear a command from God, you can agree with its goodness in a sense. Like you say, yeah, that's technically a good thing to do, but you hate that he says it because you have no ability to flee from it. You know that every time he says that command gives that law, you know that it condemns you. And you know that he's commanding you to do something you just can't do. You can't stop your sexual immorality. You are dead in that sin. You are, you, are, you are addicted to the sin that is poisoning your soul. And so you hear all of this and say, this is ridiculous. It's unfair. It's, it's unmodern. It's, it's coming from a place that lacks understanding. I, I, I can't relate to this. And friend, you can. Even if you're not a Christian, you can relate to this. Paul's not saying that you have the natural competency and ability to flick the porn addiction, line yourself up and become a, a polished person in front of Jesus Christ. He says, you can't. You're dead. You're enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. We already covered this in the previous sermon. He's saying, I'm assuming you're dead in your sin. But there is such a thing as conversion. There is such a thing as being born again. And every one of us must undergo that, the renewal of our being in order to walk in what he's talking about. For some of you, that is yet to happen. For the rest of us, that has happened and is in the past. And he's saying, you must now put them all away because you're a new person. Look at what he says to put away. And this is what we were saying is the actions, is the interactions between other people. The other list was about our own heart. This is about how we relate to each other. Verse 8, 
uh, uh, yes, verse 8, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. These are the things that we are being told to put away. Anger, he says here. Anger, which is the feeling of hatred towards other Christians, other people. Anger. He says rage, which is the bubbling over of that anger. Wrathful outbursts, fury and distemperateness. Malice, which is vicious desires of hurt to come to other people. Malice. Slander, which is the damaging speech about people behind their back. Damaging speech about people's reputation. Obscene talk would be dirty talk or, or language that is abusive and detrimental to be heard by others. Obscene talk. And then he says, do not lie to each other. All of these things, living in lies, obscene talk, slander, malice, rage, and anger, all of them have characterized your former way of life. And if they are still left on, you need to throw these old garments that you call clothes away. Throw them away on the basis of what he says in verse 9 and 10. You have put on, in verse 10, sorry, you have put on the new self. That could otherwise be translated the new man, the new humanity, the new person or race that you belong to, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here, since we're talking about how we treat each other with malice and anger and rage and uh, we're nice to some, we're not as nice to others. We're patient with some and not to the others. We prefer them and excuse their sins and we're pretty harsh on this group. Paul knows that we are likely, as every generation of humans are, we are all the more likely to give grace to those like us and law and harshness to those unlike us. So he simply says, as we're putting all of these things away from us, remember that here, one of the, the, the deciding factors of how we treat each other is never your social status, income, or race. Never. That is not a deciding factor. So here there's not Greek or Jew. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian and Scythian, slave or free. We are all identified in this primary one way. Christ. Christ is in you. Christ is all of us. Christ, I treat you as if I'm treating Christ himself. I speak to you. I relate to you as if I'm relating to Jesus in flesh. I don't make an excuse for your skin color, your background, your, your cultural background, or, or something that you've done before or done for me. Those things do not determine the way that we treat each other. Rather, putting on the new man that looks like Jesus. That's what matters. So we've, we've seen verse 1 to 4, get your mind on Jesus. You'll see next, throw away the old uh, ways of living as you put to death the old affections. And now he starts getting a lot more positive. He starts getting a lot more constructive after he's been deconstructive and destructive towards our sin. Look at verse 12. Put on them. Since now you're a new man, you're a new race, you are now God's holy and chosen beloved people. You're a new race. What do you need to wear? What should people look and see when they look at you? 
the clothes that you need to put on to characterize you as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, are this. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We're told here to put on all of these these things that are going to be making us look more like our profession. We say we're dead to sin and alive in Christ. Here are the things that Paul lays down. He says, this is what should mark us. Compassionate hearts. If you've got the KJV, it'll say something like bowels of tender mercy, I think is what it is. So live out that that tender boweledness. In compassionate hearts, what we mean is a mercifulness to one another, a, a tenderness towards each other. In kindness, he, I, I think the meaning that comes through here is, is benevolence, these acts of mercy that we ought to be doing towards each other in an actual outward kindness, generosity, goodwill. Humility is that we should be marked by our submission to the will of God and not by seeking to achieve all of our own desires, living by our own law, but humbled like Jesus was to the will of God. Meekness means to be without unnecessary harshness towards other people. We don't walk around and with our words or personality seek and take joy in just shiving each other in the ribs because that's your personality. You took the Myers-Briggs and it came out as J-E-R-K. You don't get to do that for that reason. But we have meekness towards one another. And with that, when somebody doesn't have a whole lot of meekness, you need patience, which is that you're not walking around with resentment. You are hard to offend and frustrate. You've got a long fuse. You can go the whole of Sunday, two services, the same lot of people, and you're not grinding your teeth by the end of it. You actually, you're patient. You're inwardly able to bear with other people, which is the next phrase, that you have thick skin, bearing with one another. We we grind on each other and we prickle one another. And if you've got thick skin like you should, you're not jumping up and down over every little offense. We're able to bear with each other and forgive, which is the next one. That we are able to get over offenses the way that God would have us get over them. Some of us get over things and it's not forgiveness. It's just putting someone on your list, remembering that you hate them, not remembering why. That's not forgiveness. Getting over offenses without forgiveness leads to bitterness on one of the two sides. He he actually gives us some parameters here. He says, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive one another. This is a must. We have to do it in as certain as God has forgiven us, we must forgive others. But it comes with some guidelines. We forgive each other as God forgave us, which means that we, which means that we can't do it and we don't do it without bearing cost. Forgiveness is not cheap. One of us has to bear the brunt of what has been done. Either I absorb the cost or you absorb the cost. But forgiveness is for me to absorb the cost that you have incurred. That is how God forgave us. 
We forgive not without addressing what needs to be addressed. Sometimes we need to have the conversation to say, here's what you did, here's how it was wrong, here's how it was an offense to me, here's how I will forgive it. That's how God forgave us. Not without telling us that we're sinners deserving of an eternal hell. He tells us, he addresses it, and yet he forgives it. And when he does so, he initiates it and overflows the offense with grace. This is what we need to be able to do. When we are offended, or when we know we've offended another, whichever side you're on, as soon as you're aware of it, you initiate the restoration as God has done to us. You don't wait, you don't sit back, and if they give a rip, they'll come talk to me, but approach them, address it. Take the initiative to restore the brotherhood as God has forgiven us, so we must also forgive, and there's not a footnote that tells you that your situation is the exception. There is none. All of us must pursue forgiveness. It doesn't matter the size or the depth or uh, how, how unsorry they are. We should pursue a relationship that brings back forgiveness and restoration. And this all sounds like there's a, there's a bunch of clothes he just threw at you. He's standing at the salvos and throwing you everything that's under a dollar. And you got to grab them out of the air and quickly put them on. And it feels like there's so much here. And how do we live in all of that? And the one thing that binds everything up, the big old belt that you can throw around it all to hold it on, is love. Charity. That, that, that characteristic of God which seeks the good in others despite the cost for ourselves. That cherishing of other people, that desire to do charity towards other people or to be central to who we are. It's love that brings everything else into harmony and from harmony we see him flow into the command, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. He's getting back to this reality of unity. Of, of peace between brothers and sisters, as we've been called to love and all of these external sins to be put away, these external ways of loving one another to be put center stage and put on our clothing, we should be letting the peace of Christ rule in us and through us in our interactions because we are one body. The church is one body, not fractioned up, not despising one another, but living in the unity that only the Holy Spirit can bring. So the peace of Christ brings, first of all, peace between me and God. I'm forgiven. I'm a new person. He loves me. I'm going to see him. I have a security because my life is hidden with him. I have a peace with God. Everywhere that peace of Christ rules and reigns, it will be marked by a peace between brother and sister a peace bringing between uh, individuals. And that is what we desire to see in those who are shaping their mind according to Christ. Now go to 15, towards the very end of verse 15, and we'll read through to 17. And in this section, we see three, each verse, verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17, all tell us to be thankful to God. The end of verse 15, he says, and... Be thankful. Well, for what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't say. Just be thankful. Well, have you thought about my situation? Don't care a whole lot. He just said, be thankful. Yeah, but when? Always. But how? Don't care. Just be thankful. Full stop. That's what he said. Be thankful. Every one of us. And then in verse 16, it gets a bit more practical. In verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Here he, he focuses in on that thing that the church ought to do, which is the singing of praises to God. And then he closes it out with saying, and whatever you do, in fact, word or deed, whatever else, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So back to verse 16. We get a little bit more specific. We, can, we do ourselves no favor when we make a false dichotomy in the church service between the teaching and the singing. Strict, chasm, never the twain shall meet. You never mix teaching and singing. Teaching is all about mind. I put teaching on this side, didn't I? Teaching is all about mind. It's all about head. It's all about truth. It's all about words, theology. Singing is all about noise and vibes and atmosphere and feelings and affections and bass and lights and smoke machines, if you want, and guys with denim. That's what worship and singing is all about. And, and then you can even do another false dichotomy where, where the singing is called worship and the, the teaching or the sermon is called learning. Is, is that how you have thought about the church service for far too long? Paul is giving us a concept here that would, that would mingle everything while maintaining order. He's speaking about letting the word of Christ, which is just language for the truth about Jesus that we've been talking about, the gospel, the, the truth about Jesus and all that is in him, let that dwell in you richly during the singing. Now that's anathema to the modern day worship movement. During the singing, he means, during the, the practice of Christian singing, it's just not New Testament worship, it's just not New Testament singing if it doesn't have as a basis for it deep, sound, biblical, theological truths set well to music and, and melody. Uh, yes, it needs to be, we, we aim for it to be beautiful in sound, but the first and most primary part of it is that it is based on the truth that we know. So, so throw away the idea that, that singing's all about feeling and it's all individualistic. It's all just about you touching base with God, finding that spark. Worship is a state of mind. You get yourself there and then bang, you, you have a good week. And then teaching is over here and it's all based on words. No. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly while you exhort one another in the singing. So not only have we said now that the singing of the Christian worship is not devoid of truth and theology, but is based on it, but it's also the practice, not just of you touching base and getting the, the fuzzies with God, but is actually an interpersonal relationship by which we command one another. We encourage one another. We, we get ourselves like the team before the grand final into the huddle and grab each other's headgear as tight as we can, punch each other in the head, do whatever you want to do, spit and do whatever else. You, know, you, you go crazy grabbing each other, telling one another, believe these truths we're singing. Sometimes you don't feel it. That's all right. Sometimes you don't, you're, not, you're, not, you're not welled up to the emotional status that you want to call worship. That's not what it is all about. You know, when the, when the truth of justification by faith alone is in our words, we're not just singing me between God. Don't ever let the, the complaint that you have about a certain song that just doesn't quite do it for me. Doesn't matter. What we're doing in our singing is grabbing our brothers and sisters and saying, believe this. I know it's hard. 
We forget this. Don't forget it. Hold fast to this. Set your mind on these things above. This is true. And as, as the melody is set deep in our hearts, we go about our week. And, 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 and you want to know somebody's theology, you just ask what they sing. And if you want to know what, they, what, the, what their real theology is, you ask what's stuck in their mind throughout the week. And if it's 40 versions of the same chorus just climbing an octave every time, that's pretty rubbish theology. If it's those deep hymns that take us to the cross and show us the blood shed at Calvary and throw us before the law of God and justify us and show us an exultant, creating, glorious God, if it's those hymns, you are in a good, good place. The singing of a church is an act of teaching one to another. It's an act of worship to God as we let the word of God about Jesus Christ dwell in our hearts. But then he goes on, doesn't he? Verse 17 shows us that worship is not just the singing. It at least includes the listening to the word of Christ. Otherwise, you can't have it in your hearts as you sing. Worship includes the listening to the sermon. Worship includes the entire Christian life. Verse 17, and whatever you do, word or deed, in everything, do it all to the name, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's, he's pushing against this old cultic and pagan idea that they would have had, that you live how you live, you spend how you want to spend, you do whatever you want to do, just, just at certain portions of the day, go and take something and put it on an altar. Go and have a, a certain time when you go and you jump into the temple, you do your cultic acts, and then you leave. And in those moments, you're giving thanks to the deity. In those moments, you're worshiping and devoting yourself. He's pushing back against all of that. saying every single thing that you believe or you do, that's what he means by word and deed, everything you think about, everything you do, all of it comes under the banner of Jesus Christ, who is Lord raised above all. And all of it needs to be done with an exultant and a joyful and an exuberant heart of thanks to God through Jesus Christ who brought us to himself. So in summary, let's go, let's go backwards through this text. We've been told to live an entire life of thankfulness. In our daily life, we bring that thankfulness to the, to the workstation, to the footy field, to the bar where we meet a friend, to our family table, to our own bedroom. We take the pure holiness of thankfulness everywhere we go. We live a life of thankfulness, and especially in Sunday worship as we exhort one another to hold fast the truths we sing. And in our actions towards one another, we're putting on these Christ-like actions following the fact that our hearts and affections have been renewed after the Lord Jesus Christ. Because first of all, the way we started, the thing you did while you were sitting down listening to the sermon was that you set your mind on things above, which re-energized your heart and affections, which redirected your will, which changes the way that you live and all of that under the thankfulness to God. Some of us in, as we said before, all of that is entirely alien because you've never had the change of heart that comes about in regeneration. You're simply still in your sins, under the law, and heading for hell. And to you, God would command, graciously command and tell you, flee to Jesus. Your entire life is one of a, of a short mist. You are confused. You will conflict and confuse and harm yourselves until you come to Jesus, and you must. You will bend the knee at some point. You can, you can laugh and mock and throw away the command to bend to Jesus now. Say, I, I don't accept that he's Lord. 
And in that case, your, your knees will be bent by force on the day that you see him on judgment. Or, by the Spirit, you can willingly acknowledge, I am a sinner. His word is true. Jesus did die, and I believe it. And now, bend the knee and be made an obedient, a willing praiser and thanksgiver to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, it is, uh, it is with a simple prayer that we come to you, and we simply say as we, as we come into your holy presence, we ask that this text would be true of us. It would be true of us individually, and as families, and as friendship circles, and, and also, and more importantly, as a body of Jesus Christ, the church on earth. We ask that our minds would be set on Jesus, that we would understand, that we would uh, uh, be able to comprehend and we would be able to see the truthfulness of Christ in Scripture and how he applies to every arena of life. I ask that you would set our minds there. And having done that, that you would set our affections there so that it's, it's him that we desire. It's, it's Christ-likeness that we desire. It's things that, that move the kingdom forwards that we desire. Lord, would you, would you reshape our hearts because we are sick of our sin and we despise our weakness. So we ask that you would be gracious and help us with that. We ask that that would, that would bleed out, that that would overflow and bubble over into our lives with, with, with how we treat one another. That we would be evidently those changed with a power from God by how we live, by how we do community, by how we, we live one with another. And Lord God, would you give to us for all of the, of the good that you've done for us in the past and for all of the ground that you've helped us gain in sanctification and for all the ways that you've blessed this community called Hope Reformed Baptist Church, for all that you've promised to do, for all that you have already done for us in Jesus Christ, would you fill us with a joyful thankfulness so that whatever else is taken from us, that is always on our lips. A thankfulness to you, our gracious and merciful God for what you have done through the work of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name, and everybody said, amen.